Everyone can find their seats. We'll get started. Well, good morning and welcome back to Sunday School. We're continuing on with our study of the Bible and our study of the book of Genesis and our study of the life of Joseph. Last week, we saw God bless Joseph in Egypt. Yes, hello, Craig. We saw, we saw God bless Joseph in Egypt, even while Joseph suffered various injustices. Joseph could not see at the time why he was suffering these hard setbacks, but his suffering was not for sin. He was actually doing what was right. Instead, the reason for Joseph's suffering was that God was working out a precise and beautiful plan that would result in God's glory and the good of Joseph and many others. Even us today, we are benefits from the injustices that Joseph suffered. Now, today we're looking more specifically at where Joseph's trials were ironically leading to, and that is Joseph becoming the de facto ruler of Egypt. How did that happen? Why did that happen? And what does it mean for us? We'll find out after we pray. So let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you for your word that you have revealed this mystery. You have revealed things that we would never know unless you had actually written them down for us through your servants. So God, I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain this word now. And God, I pray that there would be a level of expectation now that your people, Lord, would expect to see you and to be transformed by your word. I pray, God, that you would accomplish that by your spirit and that you would make us all more into Christ's image. Grow us in faith. Grow us in love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one motif we, th we see throughout the Bible is the sudden reversal brought about by God. Many times God takes someone lowly and suddenly exalts that person or brings them into prosperity. But also, many other times, God takes someone elevated and suddenly casts them down, either to suffering or to destruction. Can you think of any examples of this kind of reversal in the Bible? Yes, Roy. That's right. We see both his sudden exaltation, but also his sudden fall in the life of King Saul. Very good. Who else or where else do we see that? Okay, uh, to some respect, Peter, yeah, he does have moments of moments of triumph, but also moments of uh, very great humiliation, uh, especially his denying Jesus Christ. That was a big low point for Peter, though maybe he's not quite as extreme as some of the other examples in the Bible. Can you think of another one? Uh, yes. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar is another great one, right? He had a somewhat gradual rise, but a very sudden casting down because of his hubris, because of his pride in his own accomplishments before God. He says, is this Babylon not this great city that I have built? And God says, you're going to be like an animal for the next periods of time. 
So yeah, there's another great example. And we could point to many others. Uh, Job, righteous man, suddenly brought into suffering. The book of Esther is all about reversals. We have Vashti being brought down, Esther being raised up, Mordecai being raised up, Haman being brought down, and then the Jews as a whole being exalted while their enemies are cast down. Or even the life of Hezekiah, you look in the book of Kings or you look in the, the book of Isaiah, God allowed the Assyrians to invade the kingdom of Judah and take over every city except Jerusalem. I mean, Judah is at an extreme low point. It looks like they're about to fall. And then when Sennacherib boasts against God, God says, I'm going to take care of this. And in one night, he destroys 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army. That was basically the whole army. And they have to retreat in disgrace. God delivered the city, a sudden reversal at the last minute. And Assyria was cast down. And of course, the greatest example of a sudden reversal would be Christ's own life. God himself, the Son of God, put to death on the cross. Can't get any lower than that. And yet, right at that moment of extreme defeat, he was actually accomplishing the greatest victory. And a few days later, he rises from the grave. So this theme, this idea of sudden reversal, it's all over the scriptures. But we might ask, why? Why does God emphasize, or what does God emphasize about himself by accomplishing these reversals? What do you think? I think I heard somebody say it quietly. He's in charge, right? This is emphasizing God's sovereignty. He's in control. Men are not in control. By the way, if you ever want to be humbled in life, just try and predict the future. Because you think you think you can understand what's going to happen and how things are going to turn out. But then God shows you, no, you don't know. There are tons of factors outside of your control, tons of things you don't understand. And so it is every time we see a reversal. God says, look, I'm the one who's in control. I know what's going on, but you don't. You also see that nothing is too hard for God. There's no situation where someone is so secure that they can't be cast down. But there's also no situation where someone is so, uh, so abandoned that God cannot raise him up, even in the most exalted way. And many of these reversals that we see in the Bible... Uh, probably all of them, you could say, they are directly connected to the promises of God. Why is it that God casts down and raises up? It's because he's acting according to his promises, remaining faithful to his promises. So these reversals, they show to us God is sovereign, we're not. Nothing's too hard for God, and God keeps his promises. And this is true even for the reversals we see today, because we still do see them. And you can see them in the headlines, right? You always see news items along the lines of these types of things. A successful company suddenly falls apart with an economic crash. Or a viral video turns a nobody into a star overnight. Great ruler suddenly brought down by scandal. Or that team, it, it makes that last-minute comeback in the championship game. We see these reversals even today, and even in our own lives. Maybe you are in a situation where you were enjoying prosperity and blessing, and then suddenly tragedy hits your life. Or maybe you've been in a difficult situation for a long time, and then suddenly it turned around. Suddenly there was deliverance. And we learn the same truths, or we're reminded of the same truths about God in those reversals that we experience. God is sovereign. We are not. Nothing's too hard for God, either to raise up or to cast down. 
And we are encouraged to trust in God's promises. Because even when deliverance or provision seems impossible for us, God is able to reverse everything to keep his word. We are reminded of these things. But do we believe these things? Do we believe that God really is sovereign? That nothing's too hard for him? And that he will keep his promises? The account we're going to look at today is another example of a sudden divine reversal. And it's there to encourage us to trust in our good and loving and sovereign God. Please open your Bibles to Genesis 41. Genesis 41 is page 44 if you're using the Pew Bible. Genesis 41, picking up again with the life of Joseph. Last time we were with him, he was left to languish in prison. Cupbearer, even though Joseph had done a kindness for him in interpreting the cupbearer's dream, he forgot about Joseph. And so Joseph spends more time in the prison. We're going to look at the whole chapter in Genesis 41 today, but it's rather long, so we're going to take it in two parts. We'll start with just verses 1 to 36. Genesis 41, verses 1 to 36. Now it happened, at the end of two full years, that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven years of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I have never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. 
Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came upon a single stalk. And lo, seven ears withered, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And then the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. But Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years, great abundance, coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. And as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Now, let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land, and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority, and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not perish during the famine. All right, we're going to pause there, and we'll make some observations. Notice how much longer Joseph is left in prison. Two full years. But then, critically, Pharaoh, the king, the ruler of Egypt, gets two dreams the same night. Now, like other dreams we've seen in the previous chapters, these pairs of dreams have many parallel elements. Here, in these dreams, we see seven fat and healthy things consumed by seven ugly and thin things. By the way, fat in the scriptures always associated with healthiness. What's Pharaoh's reaction to these dreams? He doesn't wake up saying, man, that was weird. In verse 8, it says, in the morning his spirit was troubled. Pharaoh is anxious, he's depressed, he's anguished about these troubling dreams, these disturbing dreams. Remember what we said last time. Ancient Egyptians considered dreams to represent omens of the future. And Pharaoh's dreams would be considered especially important. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's even God in the eyes of many of the Egyptians. He's considered to be God. So what do Pharaoh's dreams mean? What do they pretend? What does Pharaoh do about this? He calls for all his dream specialists. Tell me what this means. But the problem is, as the end of verse 8 tells us, no one can interpret the dreams for Pharaoh doesn't mean that none of them tried. Maybe they did. But if they did offer an interpretation to Pharaoh, it was not convincing. It did not allay his fears. But suddenly the cupbearer remembers something, and he speaks up. Notice in verse 9, the cupbearer mentions his offenses, plural. The fact that he uses this term probably indicates that he's not only bringing up whatever he did to offend Pharaoh, 
but also the other inexcusable action of the past, which is forgetting Joseph in prison. He's like, let me mention some things that were bad that I did. Cupbearer tells Pharaoh about Joseph. So Pharaoh sends for this Hebrew man right away. Notice verse 14 says, they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon and they prepared him for Pharaoh. Joseph had to shave, probably his beard, because Egyptians were not into beards, maybe even all the hair of his head. And he's given a change of clothes and then brought before Pharaoh. Now notice the exchange that takes place when Pharaoh and Joseph first meet. Verse 15, Pharaoh says, I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. But Joseph says, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So quite obviously, to whom does Joseph give all the credit for interpretation? He gives it to God. And notice also that Joseph states that the interpretation will be favorable to Pharaoh. This is not to say that the contents of the dream are not going to be difficult, but that when Joseph tells Pharaoh what it means, it will, in some sense, set Pharaoh's mind at ease. And notice in verse 25, after Joseph hears the dream, that Joseph doesn't miss a beat in interpreting the dream. He's not like, hmm, let me think about that. Or, you know what, hold on, let me pray to God about this. Rather, Joseph immediately understands the dream and begins explaining it to Pharaoh. And Joseph says, Pharaoh, these dreams are one. They describe the same reality. The fact that there are two dreams is to show that, uh, two dreams in the same thing, is to show that this matter has been determined by God and he's going to bring it about quickly. He also interprets the different elements of the dream. Fat cows and fat years of grain, they represent seven years of abundance, bountiful crops in Egypt. Skinny cows and the blighted years of grain, they represent seven years of famine, terrible famine, famine so bad that the abundant years will not be remembered at all during the years of famine. All of Egypt's resources will be used up and be long gone. But notice, Joseph doesn't stop with the interpretation of the dream. In verses 33 to 36, Joseph offers some counsel to Pharaoh based on the dream's revelation. Now, he wasn't asked for this, but he offers it. And notice what Joseph advises. Verse 33, let Pharaoh appoint a wise and discerning man over all of Egypt. And then, verses 34 and 36, let Pharaoh appoint overseers to help this central man and let them gather grain and store it during the abundant years so that it will be available during the coming years of famine. Now remember who Joseph is. He's a disgraced slave, he's a foreigner, and he's a prisoner. And he not only confidently interprets the dream for Pharaoh, but he gives this unsolicited advice about what Pharaoh should do about this dream. How's Pharaoh going to react to this Hebrew slave? We're not going to interpret just yet. Let's actually read the rest of the passage. Look at verses 37 to 57. And we'll finish this section. Verse 37. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, 
I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So we gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities place in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Athenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. And he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, and there was a famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, or, and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. All right, let's observe some more. Notice the reaction to Joseph's interpretation and counsel. It's pretty good. Verse 37, everyone likes Joseph's proposal. Over in verse 38, Pharaoh recognizes that there's a divine spirit in Joseph. So, and also in verse 39, Pharaoh commends Joseph with the same two descriptors that Joseph said would be needed in the man to be appointed over Egypt. He is wise and discerning. So what does this mean for Joseph? Pharaoh says, I'm putting you in command. Doesn't ask Joseph's permission for this, doesn't give him an invitation. He just says, this is what's going to happen. You shall be over my house. Verse four. Essentially, Pharaoh makes Joseph second in command in Egypt. Everyone is under Joseph's authority aside from Pharaoh. And he gives Joseph many signs of authority. And we see these in verses 42 to 43. Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring, the seal that would allow Joseph to uh, mark documents with Pharaoh's own authority. It gives Joseph fine clothing. It gives a gold chain for his neck. It gives him the ability to ride in Pharaoh's second chariot, have people bow before him. By the way, these same symbols of authority are attested elsewhere in Egyptian history as being given by Pharaoh to those he exalts in authority in Egypt. The Bible is totally accurate in describing what Pharaoh does. But there's more that Pharaoh does for Egypt than merely invest him with authority and the signs of it. It gives Joseph a new name, an Egyptian name, Zaphonath Paneah, 
don't exactly know what that means. There's a lot of debate around it. It does seem to have something to do with life, though, and salvation. Besides giving him a name, he also gives Joseph a wife and a wife from a good family. He marries, Joseph marries Asenath, whose daughter of Potipharah, and Potipharah is a priest in the city of On, a major city in Egypt, also known as Heliopolis. So this name, this marriage, these symbols of authority, Joseph is firmly established in Pharaoh's, co Pharaoh's court and given great honor. Verse 46 gives us a chronology update. It says that Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. Now, how old was Joseph when he was sold into slavery? He was 17. So that means that combination of his time enslaved, prison, he's been in Egypt for 13 years. And those were 13 long years for Joseph, many of them very difficult. But notice how things have turned around. He has experienced a great reversal. No longer in prison, but ruling over Egypt. And just as Joseph foretold, seven years of abundance come upon Egypt. Joseph and his team of officials, they gather the food to get ready for the coming years of famine. And they're very successful in doing so. Verse 49 says, they stopped measuring the grain because it's beyond measurement. That must have been a ton of food. And God makes Joseph's wife fruitful as well. And we see this in verses 50 to 52. She bears Joseph two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And notice that these are Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. We're also given explanations of the name in the text. And notice these explanations both involve God. Manasseh means forgetful or causing to forget. And we're told why. Because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. By the way, this statement here about forgetting his father's household, it probably does not mean that God caused Joseph to forget his family in Canaan. Only that God caused him to forget the trouble he experienced with his family. That's because these two phrases, all my trouble and all my father's household, they actually are to inform each other. They need to be understood together. It's kind of like how in Genesis 3.16, God tells the woman, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbirth. Literally, the Hebrew there is, I will multiply your pain and your childbirths. Is he saying that he was going to multiply two different things? No, they're actually describing the same thing. I'm going to multiply your pain in childbirth. The, the grammatical term for this is called a hendiadis. It's the same thing here. He's not saying he's forgotten his family. Quite the opposite. We're going to see that when his family comes, he's going to be quite emotional about them. But he forgets the trouble. He forgets the trouble that he experienced with his family. Because God has so blessed him. It's actually quite interesting. Joseph's experience is somewhat opposite to what Egypt is experiencing. Egypt is going from prosperity to amnesia causing famine. But Joseph is going from famine to amnesia causing prosperity. And Joseph's second child's name emphasizes the same truth. Ephraim means fruitfulness or fruitful. And it's because, as Joseph says, God made Joseph fruitful in the land of Joseph's affliction. So seven years of abundance come upon Egypt, just as Joseph said, but then seven years of famine also come. Notice, not only is it Egypt that experiences this famine, but all the surrounding regions. Verse 54 says, there was famine in all the lands. And then verse 56, the famine was spread over the face of the earth. 
over all the face of the earth. And verse 57 says, the famine was severe in all the earth. And these phrases don't indicate that literally every place on the planet Earth was experiencing famine. This is hyperbole. This is used to emphasize how widespread this famine is. All the known lands, all the lands surrounding Egypt and Canaan are experiencing it. But what is causing this famine? It's interesting we don't get a specific description of what this famine was. Was it locusts? Was it lack of rainfall? Was it some sort of uh, environmental disaster? We don't know. Ultimately, though, we know the cause. It was from God. God is in control of the earth. He brings upon the seven years of famine. But what do all the people in these famished lands do? They go where there's food. And where is the only place that there's food? In Egypt. Verse 55, 57 say, All the earth was coming to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And who would be part of that group of all the earth? Who would need to come down to Egypt for food? Joseph's family, Israel, and his sons, who are currently living in Canaan. Moses is already foreshadowing for us the family reunion that's going to take place in the following chapters. Because remember, God foretold, God foretold when Joseph was still in Canaan that his family would one day bow down to him. That is still yet to happen. All right, so we've made a ton of observations on this chapter. Let's ask a few of interpretation questions. Now. Why is it that only Joseph can successfully interpret Pharaoh's dreams? What do you think? Yes. That's right. It's God who's giving him the ability to interpret. And I think, Craig, did you say something too? Okay, yeah. This is not to give credit to Joseph. Joseph's not just like, hey, man, I can interpret dreams. No, this is God at work. God gives both the dreams and the interpretation. That's why Joseph gives all the credit to God. And here we see a theme we also see throughout the Old Testament and throughout the scriptures, and that is God is able to do what no man and what no false God can do. No one can interpret the dream. God can interpret the dream. There's even a little bit of a polemic here, a little bit of a, a showing up of Pharaoh and of all the false gods of Egypt. They can't provide the answer. They can't tell what the future is going to be. But Yahweh can, and Yahweh does, because there's no God like God. Here's another question. Did Pharaoh or Egypt deserve what God does for them here? If you know anything about what the Bible says about man's depravity, the answer has to be no. It's a godless nation. I'm sure there's common grace there, but they do not serve Yahweh. They do not uphold his good, uh, his good law, those things that are consistent with who God is. Pharaoh acts as if he is a God on the earth. How can you more directly try to steal the glory of God than by saying that you are God? They do not deserve these kindnesses that God shows them. So why does God do it? Why does God show such kindness to Egypt and to Pharaoh? What do you think?
part of the answer has to be, of course, it's because this is who God is. God is a merciful God. God is a saving God. Even for those who don't deserve it, he shows mercy. He does that for Egypt and Pharaoh here. And remember what God does with Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah doesn't care about those people. He wants them all to die. God says, don't you think? Or do you, do you find fault with me because I have compassion on these people? And because I have compassion on their little ones and their animals. So God has compassion on Egypt. And so God has had compassion on all peoples of the world throughout history. You think about the people who didn't follow God for centuries. Yet they experienced good. God didn't just allow the people there to just die out. To be obliterated. Sometimes he allowed certain judgments to fall on them. But he did them good even though they didn't follow him. And you know what? The Apostle Paul in Acts 14, Acts 14, verse 17, he says, this is testimony that God exists. The good providence that every person experiences in this world, whether they follow God or not, is a testimony that God is there and that they know it. Paul says, God did not leave himself without a testimony because he gave you rain and did you good. He allowed you experience good. And we see that here with Egypt. But there's more to it than that. It's not merely God's compassion for Egypt, which they didn't deserve. This is also God showing that loyal love to his chosen people. Because we've already seen God determined to bless and preserve the seed of Abraham. And there's going to be a famine. There's going to be a famine that's going to affect that seed. God's people, God's chosen people would need food. And God raised up Egypt and Pharaoh and Joseph in Pharaoh's court to provide that necessary provision for God's people. Now, Egypt, as the agent of this blessing, would benefit as a result. But Egypt was not God's chief concern. Israel was. God's people were. And isn't this exactly what God said in the Abrahamic covenant? Those who bless you, I will what? I will bless. And those who treat you lightly, I will curse. Egypt blesses Israel. God raises up Egypt to do this. Therefore, Egypt is blessed. Their entire people are blessed, Pharaoh included. But what happens when Egypt turns later to oppress Israel? Will they remain blessed? Not at all. God judges and curses Egypt for Israel's sake just as he promised in the Abrahamic covenant. So behold then, how wonderful it is to be part of God's chosen people. God's people will be blessed. And surely they will be blessed amazingly in the end, though they will suffer at times and for various times in this life. But those who are not in Christ, those who are not part of God's chosen people, they may ex experience blessing for a time out of God's undeserved mercy, but they will not be blessed in the end. They will be cursed in the end. So if you are currently in rebellion against God, yet still experiencing his patient mercy, you need to lay down your arms. You need to repent and turn to God. Your rebellion, in spite of the good he is doing you, is actually laying up more of his holy wrath against you. This is why the Bible urges you to come to Christ while there is time. 
before God ends his patience and pours out his anger. How good it is to be part of God's blessed people, God's preserved people. Now, question along a different line. Why did God choose to so dramatically exalt Joseph? Well, clearly again here, there is another example of God's loyal love, not just for his chosen people as a whole, but even for its individuals. God will permit his people to suffer for a time, but his intention is to ultimately bless them. And Joseph is in the line of Abraham. He was a son of blessing just as Isaac was and just as Israel was. And God had already promised via Joseph's dreams that he would one day exalt Joseph. And we see him bringing part of that prophecy to pass. And God saw fit to do this suddenly. He went straight from the prison to the palace, from ruling over the pit to ruling over all of Egypt, from bowing down before all to having everyone bow down before him. And all this in a matter of hours. And let's note, Pharaoh didn't have to exalt Joseph. He didn't need to place Joseph in a position of power, even if Joseph interpreted the dreams and gave good counsel. But he did. Why did he do it? This is God working at the heart of Pharaoh, is it not? Sure, there are practical reasons to appoint Joseph. But again, ultimately, this is God. This is God, just as the proverb says, the king's heart is a channel in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God has Pharaoh's heart in his hand. And God moves Pharaoh to exalt Joseph because it fit God's purposes. This is really another divine reversal, just like we described in the beginning of today's lesson. Nothing is too hard for God. He's in control, not Pharaoh, not the cupbearer, and not even Joseph. God had promises to keep. He had intentions to bless, to fulfill. And he waited to just the right moment to spring the next phase of his promises so that everyone can see that it is God was sovereign. It was out of love for his own glory and out of love for Joseph, out of love for his chosen people, that God suddenly reversed the state of Joseph's life. Now, perhaps the next big question related to that is, will God do the same for you? And we're getting a little bit into application now. Will God suddenly exalt and bless you? After all, Galatians says you are a spiritual child of Abraham. If you are in Christ, will you experience a similar exaltation as Joseph does? The answer is yes, but that needs some explanation. In this life, to be very frank with you, you should prepare both for sudden tragedies and sudden mercies. Because as we saw last week, no one can completely understand what, is, what God is doing in any particular moment of life. You may experience terrible tragedies. You may be suddenly rejected by your friends and family because of Christ. You may suddenly lose your life savings due to someone else's shady business dealings. You could get in a terrible car accident and half of your family perishes. You could be the victim of an unspeakable crime you might have a dear friend suddenly depart the faith. 
These things do happen to Christians. They have happened to Christians. But when these things happen to you, there will be pain, there will be sorrow, great sorrow. But do not despair. Because God ordains these things. The only reason he causes and permits these things is to bring about a greater good. Just as he did in the life of Joseph. Joseph had terrible turns around. But they were for an amazing and mysterious end. God was, even in those tragedies that you experience, God is going to bring glory to himself and he's going to do you transcendent good and good to others. Sudden tragedies are actually part of God's love to you. It's just that mysterious transcendent love, but it is love. So when they happen, trust your heavenly father. Keep walking with him. These will happen to you in your life, so be ready for them. Be ready for those trials, deep trials that don't have an immediate explanation. But on the other side, be ready also for sudden deliverances. Many of you are or will be stuck in situations that are difficult for a long time, and you might be tempted to think things will never change. And you know what? You could be right. Maybe they won't. But you might be wrong. Maybe they will. Never give up hope in what God might do. Because you see, amazing deliverances also happen to Christians, even in this life. A family full of God-haters becomes a family of true believers. I was just talking to a guy the other day who was uh, thinking about coming to seminary, and that's his experience. When he came to faith, his whole family hated the Lord and hated him. But now they're all believers. Who brought about the sudden deliverance? God did. A wayward spouse? can return a genuine affection and devotion. A necessary financial provision, it can happen in the nick of time. A ruthless dictatorship can be overturned. And a spiritual revival can spread across an entire nation. God can do these things. And he sometimes chooses to do so. So this should motivate us to pray. This should motivate, motivate us to remain faithful to God. This should motivate us to continue doing what's right because you never know what God might do with it. God is the God of reversal. He turns mourning into gladness. Now, we don't want to idolize these hopes. We don't want to say, God must do this or else I'm not going to be content anymore. God in his wise sovereignty, he may determine it's not good for these things to change or it's not good for these things to change right now. But sometimes he determines that it is. When his people perseveres, he often brings sudden deliverances. So as the great missionary to India, William Carey once said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. In this life, be ready both for sudden tragedies and for sudden mercies. Both of these come from your God, your good and loving God, they are from his hand. But in addition to that, and this is why I can say yes confidently to the question I asked earlier. In addition to being ready for sudden reversals in this life, be ready for the great reversal that will take place at the end of life. There's so many scriptures that testify that what we believers experience now will be changed. And it will become the opposite of what we experience when we are with the Lord. Now we are persecuted ostracized, 
humiliated. But when we're with Christ, we will be glorified and rewarded. Now we experience oppression and injustice, but then we will rule with the king of righteousness and justice. Now we experience deep pain and sorrow, but then we will only know comfort and joy. And why is this? Because we've earned it? By no means. It is because of the abundant love and faithfulness of God. It is because of the incredible salvation work of Christ on our behalf. Talk about reversals. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We do not deserve the everlasting inheritance that we have in Christ. But make no mistake, one day we will have it. Things will be reversed. You will have it if you are in Christ. Like Joseph, when we experience the blessing of what is to come, that blessing will make us forget all the troubles, all the struggles that we presently experience. Listen to, way, listen to the way the Apostle John talks about it in Revelation 21. He's speaking specifically here about the new heavens and the new earth, but Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8, John writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, there's such a great reversal coming, and it is a reversal of whatever happens in this life. The lowly ones in Christ will be exalted unto eternal life, but the proud and stubborn ones, those who never turn from their sins, He'll be thrust down into eternal death. Which side of the reversal do you want to be on? It will come. That's why, if you haven't yet, the scriptures urge you, flee to Christ. He is yet welcoming all sinners who repent. All those who believe in Christ, all who believe in him to be what he said he actually is, the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, God, 
those who turn to Christ, they will experience life with him forever. But those who do not, it's as I think it's John 3.18. Those who believe are not condemned, but those who have not believed are condemned already because they have not believed in the only Son of God. Only Jesus can make you right with God. So that's why you must turn from your sins, trust in Christ, and follow him. As we close, just a few more questions to help you and think about application. Already we mentioned be ready for the reversals of life and be ready for the great reversal at the end of life. But also here are some other questions. If you were to die right now, right now, today, tonight, which reversal would you receive? Would you be lifted up by God? Or would you be cast down by him? Does your life reflect that you expect great things from God, even sudden deliverances and exaltations, if God should determine that such is ultimately glorious for him and good for you and others? Do you expect that that's the way that God acts? We see it in the scriptures. Why should it be any different in your life? And then finally, do you marvel at the undeserved kindness that you receive in every situation, even in the hardships you experience, even in the blessings you experience, but especially in the blessing that is to come? That is undeserved kindness. Remember, you are like that man, Mephibosheth, who was a descendant of Jonathan, David's friend. He was lame in his feet. But because David loved Jonathan, he wanted to do a kindness for him. So he brought Mephibosheth into his own court. He provided for all his needs. Mephibosheth couldn't understand it. He said, who am I that I should receive this blessing? I'm just a dead dog. That's you. That's you before your great and loving God. Do you marvel at the undeserved kindness that you receive, even when it's hard, because you know that that is God loving you. I'm reminded of the experience of Jonathan Edwards' wife. I believe her name was Susanna. Jonathan Edwards didn't live to an old age. Great theologian, great preacher and pastor. He died of a uh, the inoculation against tuberculosis. You know, at that time they were. They were advancing in their techniques for di preventing disease, but they gave him the little dose of TB, but it actually ended up killing him. And when his wife wrote about it to her daughter, she talked about how the Lord has seen fit to take Jonathan from us. But let us kiss the rod that strikes us. because God was good to allow us to enjoy Jonathan for so long. And even when he takes him to be home with him, he's doing good to us. God is always kind to us because we're in Christ. 
Do we marvel at that? Questions or comments about what you've heard today? All right, well, we'll end a little bit early. If you have questions or comments that you'd like to send to me via email, I welcome that. That's all for this week. Next week, we look at the conclusion, the culmination of this saga that we've been following with Joseph in Genesis. And we see the salvation of jo Jacob's family from the famine and the reconciliation of Joseph with all his brothers. Look forward to talking about that with you next time. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we know that these things are true. They are beautiful, wonderful words that your scripture has given to us. But God, they can be hard. Lord, I know I have not experienced the level of trial that many of your children have experienced. I know that's true for many of the people at Calvary, Lord. They've not yet experienced the tragedies of life to the level that some of your children have. And when they come, God, they are hard, they are painful, they are sorrowful. But you are good even in those things. Because your word tells us that you are. Your word demonstrates that you are. We see it in the life of Joseph. We see it in the life of many others in Scripture. So we know it's true. So when these things come, maybe they're being experienced right now for people at Calvary. I pray, Lord, that they would not despair. Even in through the sorrow, God, that they would... Rejoice in you. That they would marvel at your love. And God, I pray also that for everyone at Calvary, they would be thinking to the reversal that is to come. Everything will be made new. Amazingly, God, you will cause us to rule and reign with your son. Why should we? Why should we be exalted to such a position? There is no reason except from your kindness, your undeserved kindness to us. Oh, God, I pray that as we look forward to that, that it would do as 1 John 3 talks about. He who has this hope purifies himself. Lord, I pray that we would walk in a, in a way that progresses in faith, that progresses in holiness because of your kindness and because of the blessing that is to come. We taste it now, God, by just walking with you in this life. But Lord, cause us to meditate more on the world to come. So we'll be not distracted by the follies of this world, nor be made to despair by the difficulties of it. You are with us, God. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your promises. I pray that you bless the rest of the service at Calvary today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.